this is not restless. Okay, I know you just want to get to the show, but I'm actually here to tell you that there's a way that you can get even more restless in your life. You can do that by going to patreon.com backslash the restless podcast, where there are three different ways, starting at just $3 a month, that you can both support this show and at the same time get even more content, at least one extra episode a week and often more. Not to mention the Restless Telegram channel that you'll have access to 24-7 to interact with all the other patrons. If you want more Restless in your life, this is the way. Go to patreon.com backslash the Restless podcast. Okay, back to the show. Pastor Michael, I, I, I can't stop reacting to the good faith tgc debates i can't stop i didn't think i wanted to stop all day today <laughs> and we pulled up the video for tonight's debate and i realized maybe i wanted to stop <laughs> maybe i do yeah uh literally matt just says i can't stop but literally a minute ago we were talking about hey has this run its course have we done too many of these should we stop doing it uh, but it seems like a lot of you guys like it. So if you want us to keep doing these, you need to tell us because we're on the edge of maybe not doing another one for a while. Um, you just or, have to make sure we know. Or you could tell me that you would like it if um, if we got a if, if we did just like straight call in shows where you could call in and talk to us on a live stream. That would be yeah, that, that would be fun. That'd make a dream come true for me because um, I could say something to start instead of like let's get to this debate. I could say open phones <laughs> at. Uh, at whatever that number would be to get into this call so yes. pastor michael i i am i don't know i go back and forth i'm i truly i am unmanned i am a double-minded man when it comes to this debate um i was excited today when i went and bought this sustainable locally sourced uh you know i couldn't just get normal white claw for tonight i got some sustainable locally sourced you know, fermented beverage here from <laughs> Wisconsin area. Because tonight we are discussing environmentalism and climate change. Can I tell you the two reasons I am interested in this? And one of them is why I think TGC is interested in this. All right, let's do it. So number one, I'm interested to discuss this with you because as far as people I know go, there are few people I know more invested in like, doing like environmental sustainable things in their life is you um so hypothetically this should be something that like within your calling and your christian liberty you actually are like oh i actively care about this and do this right, right? that's how it would go if it went well right <laughs> that's the optimist side that's, that's matt the post-millennialist uh <laughs> being really optimistic about how this is gonna go <laughs> well, like that that's that's true but i do think people who listen may hear something from you that may be helpful now here's why i think they're interested in it so as as everyone well knows um i'm part of planting a church out here um in the midwest which is a joy i've been to some trainings and some church planting conferences some sponsored by uh the pca um thankfully one of the things i found most interesting though is 
some at one of these someone came in and presented on like topics you should preach on because they reflect the like desire the care of the oh, no. and the list was pretty bad of things you should preach about um to to be evangelistic to like you know to really drive the gospel into yeah. areas that needed to be and topping the list for millennials and gen z was global warming or as yeah. we call it, climate change that's brutal it was that's so horrible to me because, <laughs> because and we'll get into this i'm sure we'll get into this so i i came today matt uh with the nuance shirt repping oh, the nuance shirt i do have a stain i was saying i went over here i do have a stain over there i have no idea what it's from but um repping the shirt you can get this at the restlesspodcast.com um i don't actually expect to go very nuanced on this and we i mean we'll see um i i came with just some water and actually some chocolate milk in your grandmother's glass cup that you i'm sure your grandmother also had um as my grandmother did as my wife's grandmother did and uh so that's maybe not ideal for podcasting Uh, but i just I needed something that will cheer me up because anytime I hear uh, people who want to be cultural elites talking about climate change, uh, it does bother me because I do, I have a farm. uh, I have a desire to live in what I would describe as an incredibly environmentally friendly way. I don't always do that. I don't, I mean, I have electricity. I have, uh, I have air conditioning. Uh, but as much as is possible, and increasingly so over time, uh, we we do as a family intend to move in the direction of of being more uh, basically sustainable in our lifestyle. And so, this is just a topic that I'm always interested in. But it almost ne- I'll just say it almost never goes the direction that I actually think is helpful. And that's what I'm expecting. I could be wrong, but that's what I'm expecting tonight. Well, without further ado, everybody, raise your grandmother's cup, turn on your solar panels, because we are diving in. Welcome to TGC's Good Faith Debates. These are conversations designed to help you learn how to navigate difficult, emotional, maybe even polarizing issues. Just one quick thing. Uh, I know there's an old saying that says, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I'd like to put in a new thing where it's like, I'm from TGC and I'm here to help. <laughs> in our current life and culture. My name is Jim Davis, a pastor of Orlando Grace Church, and it is my privilege to be able to be the moderator for these debates. The topic for today is climate change and environmental protection. This is, of course, something most Christians would agree on that we have the mandate to steward this earth, but what does that look like now that we have 8 billion people living here, technologies that we have not had before? So this is a question that Christians really need to wade through. And of course, what role does the government have in that? I'm thankful to be joined by two people who have thought. So Pastor Michael, give us your, uh, just give us any thoughts on how that question was framed before we, uh, before we listen to, to, to the two arguments. Um, well, so I will admit, I was a little distracted just looking at the scenery um, and just how between two ferns it is. It just feels uncomfortable. And we've talked about this ad nauseum at this point. I don't have to go on about how fake it all is. Uh, but uh, when when you frame it, 
in the way they hit, which it, it wasn't horrible so far, right? Hey, we yeah. have these concerns that maybe relate to massive population increases um, over the last couple hundred years and uh, also the advent of a lot of modern technologies. Um, yeah, I, I will save anything until we actually hear what they have to say because I'm just worried I'll get ahead of myself because I am expecting so little through this and are willing to debate here today. We have Jake Meter here, Brian Matson here. Jake is a writer, speaker, and your editor-in-chief for Mere Orthodoxy. Brian, you are a theologian, a writer, a musician, and the senior public scholar of public theology for the Center for Cultural Leadership. Wow. Thank you both for joining us. And Brian, we'll start with you and get to hear your perspective on this issue. Well, thank you, Jim. Um, I'd like to begin by sharing what I believe are some controlling worldview norms that should inform Christians as they think about the environment. And then I'd like to share three areas of ethical concern that we ought to consider. As Christians, we have distinctive views about creation, human beings in relation to creation, and the purpose or telos of that relationship. Christianity has a unique perspective on creation itself. As Herman Bovink helpfully puts it, we neither denigrate nor deify nature. So unlike Gnosticism, we don't believe that the material world is something evil. Rather, it was created very good. And unlike those who would deify nature as divine, we believe that creation remains exactly that, a creation. As Paul warns us in Romans chapter 1, we're not to worship and serve created things instead of the Creator. Now, as for humans, uh, Ronald Reagan was fond of a truism that I think is certainly <laughs> consistent with Christian anthropology. Humans are ecology too. That is to say that humans belong to nature. Uh, humans are not an aberration in an otherwise pristine environment. Our presence here is a creational norm. Hmm. Notice that before the creation of humans, God repeatedly in Genesis chapter 1 saw that it was good. But it was only after he creates his image, the Imago Dei, and he blesses them and commissions them to rule and subdue the earth that he saw that it was very good. And that means, thirdly, that the relationship between humans and nature from the beginning involved productive cultivation of the earth as an intrinsic good. God is not miserly. Uh, he made the earth so that it responds to human cultivation. And that's true even after the fall. Thorns and thistles, yes, yet fruitfulness in response to labor, nonetheless. Now, I, hide all, I highlight all of this because it seems to me that many environmental and economic approaches undermine these worldview commitments to significant degrees. For example, nation, uh, nature is deified and worshiped, often literally. Uh, it is imbued with personhood and rights, as if humans were made subject to it rather than the other way around. Many environmental approaches view humans as inherently uh, parasitic and suspect. Uh, cultivation is often viewed as essentially destructive and not productive. These kinds of assumptions, uh, it seems to me, are alien to Christian theology. Moreover, our question today also involves economics. 
And there's no such thing as a neutral economic worldview. When it comes to economic interventions into the private sector by the state, it seems to me we ought to ask what kind of economic worldview is involved. So is there an underlying antipathy to, say, the private sector itself, uh, private property, corporations, wealth, economic growth and productivity, and so forth? Uh, if so, then we might be right to suspect that the goal is not actually environmental protection. Um, so, for example, I would say that uh, I would note that Representative Ocasio-Cortez's H.R. 109 bill, the so-called uh, Green New Deal, uh, has among its grab bag of mandates free health care, affordable housing, and economic security for all people. So worldview uh, matters. So with that said, let me turn and focus on three particular ethical issues I think we ought to consider. When we talk about regulatory or economic interventions in the marketplace, things like punitive tax increases, uh, redistributive subsidies, uh, imposed regulatory costs, we're talking about civil sanctions. And I believe that civil sanctions must address actual harms with reasonable causality and proximity. So for example, it seems to me one thing for the state to say, Acme Manufacturing, you are pouring toxic waste into the groundwater of your local community. This causes cancer, cease and desist. It seems to me quite another thing to say, Acme Manufacturing, um, according to our computer models, you are contributing to a global temperature change of three and a half degrees Celsius 100 years from now, cease and desist. Hmm. I'm concerned about the abstractness of that harm uh, the tenuous causality of that harm, as well as the temporal distance of that purported harm. Without these kinds of elements or considerations, that is some requirement of actual harm or causality or proximity, what is the limiting principle for what a government may morally do? Is there one? Are there any impediments or breaks on that at all? Second, it seems to me that many in this, these kinds of debates don't want to acknowledge trade-offs. Sanctions, the kinds of sanctions I just mentioned, put downward pressure on economic productivity and growth. It's not cost-free. It hurts consumers, employment opportunity, increase of wages, investments, retirement accounts, and as well as economic prospects for future generations. How much reduction in gross domestic product are we willing to take for every degree Celsius we wish to slow 50 years from now? Now that's a question I think must be answered and a rationale has to be articulated and defended, but I have yet to hear it. Now I realize that framing uh, the ethical concern this way, talking about GDP and stock prices are easy to write off as a self-interested capitalist greed, which it isn't. But the ethical concern goes far beyond that. We are bound to ask what the trade-offs and harms are to our neighbors. And here I have in mind economically marginalized peoples in the developing world. If we globally abandon or, and or ban by fiat energy production from fossil fuels, then it seems to me that we are in effect placing the burden of our sins as some imagine them to be, on the weak and helpless. 
making scapegoats of the most vulnerable. So here's how it can sound. Uh, Africa, for the good of the planet, you must continue cooking your meals over dung fires. We'll allow you to have a dorm room refrigerator and we'll give you a solar panel to power it. But you do not get steel mills. You do not get textile mills. You don't get railroads. You don't get natural gas. You don't get manufacturing. We are sorry, but we've enjoyed all of these things and we've gotten fabulously wealthy and healthy. But now the punishment for our sins must fall upon you. I believe that to be immoral. Uh, one might even call that the apotheosis of paternalistic colonialism. Hmm. But the, the ethical words. problem is even worse than that, yeah. it seems to me. And here I think there's an analogy from Christian just war tradition. Uh, one of the principles of a just war is the necessity of a reasonable chance of success. The idea is that it's immoral to initiate a conflict you cannot reasonably, where you cannot reasonably achieve the outcome. Um, to invite all of the damage for, uh, of a war for a cause lost before it even begins is unethical, according to Christian just war tradition. Likewise, I think it is unethical to wreak economic havoc here at home and to banish developing nations to darkness and poverty in a quest to reduce global carbon emissions when, on the other side of the world, the People's Republic of China is proposing to build and building, unhindered as we speak, additional coal-powered infrastructure at a capacity five times more than the rest of the world is building combined. Unless there is some magic solution to that problem, no amount of regulatory or economic intervention stands any chance of success. And the war on carbon is all for naught before it really even begins. That doesn't mean that we are helpless. Uh, we have the greatest engine for human innovation and adaptation the world has ever known. Free markets and all that they entail private property and enterprise, risk and incentives. These are the engine of human innovation that has not only brought about human prosperity and flourishing on a scale unprecedented in history, but also brings more creation care, not less. And I can elaborate more on that in our time together today. I believe the way forward in the face of our environmental challenges is forward, not backward. Free markets, even the high regulation one that we are living in right now, are not the enemy of environmental protection and creation care. They are its best friend. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so we got to wake up. <laughs> Everybody wake up. If you, if you made it through that, I watched our always like already small uh, live stream numbers just slowly slowly begin to drone off <laughs> and they're really gonna watch done they're gonna watch uh, this guy talk for a full 10 minutes aren't they they're really gonna do it and we did it um i'll just say it seems uh it, i'll just put it this way i want to be careful what i say in commenting on this debate because i think we're looking at about a c-list 
uh, Big Eva people, which means there's actually a chance I'll meet these people in real life. <laughs> and uh, so I want to I want to be careful. Uh, and so no surprise. Uh, these are the people doing this topic, apparently. Um, yeah, I mean, like this guy, this guy was intelligent, well thought out. He was obviously using notes. Yep. Um, I don't know why they're making them pretend like they aren't right that yeah. is that is weird um like hey we're just having an open discussion this i i felt like this was much the sitting and discussing like this where it's clearly still kind of a debate and you're still calling it a debate uh it just it is it makes it actually extra boring yeah it just makes it seem like there's no like at least before they would stand up and it's like, yep, they're speaking now forcefully of their position. And they yep. were in the dark, <laughs> like a, a movie villain. But now it's like, hey, everything's happy. We're all happy. Look at us. And, and yeah, it just, it came across as like, I don't, it came across as this is unimportant. And and Brian Matson is very intelligent and is about to give you 1,000 arguments in the next 10 minutes, right? Like, that's that's why that wasn't interesting because it was the like it was every like it was everything and so um i mean I, all right before we do this pastor michael here's the problem with like the idea this is why this again this is why this matters because there are people telling church planners you need to preach on this subject do you know what that means you're asking people to preach on what certain kinds of environmental practices would violate a Christian worldview, the impact on economics, regulatory <laughs> capture, abstract futuristic solutions, how to, how to measure trade-offs in public policy. And if we're going to be able to Tony Stark our way out of this at some point in the future. <laughs> uh, that was a more interesting way to put it, by the way. Of course it was because yeah. <laughs> give it, give, I mean, like I, I should never say what we need is a little more of the horrible like debate things we doing we're doing in the mainstream media. We're like, now nah, you got to get this down to two minutes. But right. this guy, right? The problem with mainstream media debates evidently was just that it's not nice enough, and the people don't talk about Christian worldview enough. Right. In the midst of it. That was the problem. And right. so if we bring those two things in, if we use the word Christian worldview and if we are a little bit nicer, uh, maybe we will capture that audience. So, yeah. So I think like this whole subject, because of what I just described, is a gigantic quagmire. Um, yeah, totally. I, I remember back when I was a fresh-faced young Calvinist and I was reading right all the books they told us to read. You know, I was uh instead of following Dave Ramsey and getting out of debt, I was I was on that I was on that crossway orderless life. Um and I ordered uh No Way Wayne, Wayne Grudem's book on politics. Have you read mm. that book? Uh That's so funny. I haven't read it, but interesting story. I did uh see him present on this book. Uh, live at Trinity, got to ask him a question. Uh, oh. I was the only person that asked him a question to whom he replied, "That is a great question," and he did not answer my question. <laughs> he did. He did a horrible job answering it. So my original, um, my original reading of it. Now I was really young. 
I just felt jaded that it was just like a a cop to promote uh, Republican talking points. Yeah. Um, I've returned to a certain section since then and actually think it deserves a good deal more credit. The worst chapter, though, was a very, very long, very boring chapter on climate change on the environment. Because here's what it was. It was a Christian theologian saying, like, let's go ahead and argue about the science and statistics of 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 environmental various environmental sciences. Right. Like a million different disciplines within that and say this is the Christian way to do it. Yeah. And I mean, it was boring. It was convoluted. And I don't know how you could possibly come to like believe you were coming to a Christian position as you went through these steps. Yeah. Um, and that's my, that is, I, I, maybe that's not the take anyone expected, but that is my fundamental problem. Whenever we approach these, this specific topic, um, and probably subjects like it. Yeah. Yeah. So my, um, I, I will say something similar, I guess, in that the thing that I drives me crazy about these kinds of conversations is you're not doing anything. Let's say that you come to a point of agreement. Let's say that you decide one of these positions is right. It doesn't matter because you're talking about whether or not there should be these certain, like number one, should we make policy that's supposed to address climate change? What policy? Like, so if you're going to debate it, it has to be a specific policy. Otherwise, just like any policy, well, like what are we, what are we even talking about? Um, it's just weird, right? It's it like you said, it's just kind of open and anyway, um, it's just it just ends up being a mess. But even if let's say we even had a specific policy, number one, the guys in that room, you and me, we have nothing to do with that policy. Right. You have maybe been convinced that because you cast a vote, your vote matters for how policy is decided on the issue of climate change. I'm just going to break it to you. It doesn't. I mean, it hasn't, it won't actually change anything. There are ways, especially on a more local level that you can probably change things. And maybe if there's a, an actual politician listening to this, all of our, uh, (laughs) all of our U S representative and Senator friends listening to the podcast right now, uh, they may have some way of affecting these things, Mm. but even at, even at that point, I'm pretty skeptical that any kind of policy will do much in the way of, of anything. And so we're not talking about actual practical things that you can do. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but who cares what you think the Christian worldview has to say about something that will never affect your life and will never change any way that you live. Right. So who cares? Right. So, let me let me make sure I come at this from the other direction now, um, because what we do want to answer is, come on, why are you Christians so slow to jump on board the like environmental train? Right. The like, why does this guy up there trying to encourage pastors to bring the gospel to environmental issues, even though that's one of the most problematic statements like regarding Christian theology you possibly can say. But. The reason is, and this is the best thing he said, and he said it in the first 30 seconds, is the question is, does your environmental goals or agenda or motivating beliefs violate fundamental Christian worldview? And currently, in 2023, the answer 
seems to almost always be yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Humanity is not treated as an important part of the environment. It's treated as blight. Right? Yeah. You know, there's all these kinds of things. Um, that is what makes... Um, that is why... That is what motivated Wayne Grudem to statistic mine a million things to say, see, they're wrong. Right? Yeah. That's why he did that. Because on a whether or not their policies have any sense, the motivation behind it is usually motivated by things opposed to the, to what God has said about the created world in the Bible. Do you agree with me on that? That, that, yeah, no, I think so. And, and um, that's right. So a couple of things that I picked up too, that he said that I think were helpful Um, as a starting place, humans are not an aberration. Um, They are not something that uh, is, it's often spoken about in environmentalist circles like mankind is the problem that has to be fixed, that mankind is the issue. Um, he pointed out that you know often mankind is seen as almost like a kind of parasite in the otherwise pristine nature, which is absurd. Now, um, I will nuance that in a second, but uh, just the very idea that this movement is generally antagonistic to human life right from the start tells you this is not something that Christians can get on board with, right? right. As a general, as a general, you know, uh, as a general uh, way of going about policy or anything like that, right? The kinds of people that say, well, we can uh, abort our children. And in fact, that's environmentally friendly because it lowers the population. You're like, we're not going in the same direction. It doesn't matter what you say about, you know, the good of preserving a certain animal species, like we're done at that point. Um, I What I will say is that a lot of these conversations come out of uh, the reality that especially in the post-industrial world, most people live in a way that actually is parasitic. Mm. Most people, um, the way that they, uh, the way that they eat, the way that they live is 100% dependent on something outside of themselves. Most uh, industrialized cities are parasitic in that they can't actually support themselves. Um, there, There's no way to sustain yourself. You have to draw off of something else. And most industrialized uh, farming practices uh, and things like that are parasitic in that they drain resources. They do not work with nature as God has created it to be regenerative, to grow over time, to become more fruitful and abundant over time. Uh, but rather they, they work in such a way to drain things, to, to, to take things uh, out. Right. So this is, you know, the idea of, of uh, you know, depleting topsoil. It's the idea of strip mining something. It's, it's the idea of, you know, going in and laying bare a full forest um, instead of doing something in a more sustainable way. There in other words, most of us live in a way that is actually kind of parasitic. And I think that's one of the reasons some people feel really like worked up about this, that, hey, I do live in this way. But what they do <laughs> is instead of actually living different, they're like, well, I'm going to keep living in my city. Um, I'm going to keep living 100% dependent on all these conveniences uh, like electricity and things like that. I'm going to continue to get all of my food that in such a way that it has been shipped from halfway across the world using fossil fuels. I'm going to continue to drive my electric vehicle 
which was created uh, through a very heavy mining process, getting the cobalt and copper and anything else that's necessary for it. And then it was, uh, you know, charged this morning with electricity that came from coal power plants. And I'm just going to vote different in such a way that we would pass some kind of policy that really has more to do with gender reassignment surgeries and things like that. Right. Like that's, that's what drives me crazy about this stuff. Now, yeah. and by the way, when I say like most of us live in a parasitic way, I'm not even saying like that's, it's actually like, like human life is more important to me than not doing that. So if somebody's in a position where that's the only way they can get food, great, get that food. Like that's, that's awesome. I do think we should all be moving in a way that's more sustainable, um, that's more regenerative in our practices. But, but like these people drive me crazy <laughs> because they don't actually do anything. You yeah. don't do anything. Yeah. So I want to say two things. First, Pastor Michael, would you quick say your Twitter handle so all my fellow <laughs> people in suburbs and cities can uh, can at you if they are unhappy with your position on the environment? Yeah, you can find me uh, at Pastor M. Bowman. Would love to talk about these things. I really want. I enjoy this. By the so, way, this is something I really care about. But here's the deal. But here's why what he just said is way more compelling than all of this because those of us who who are dissatisfied with how this environmental movement is going forward, we do need to say more about this than we're going to Tony Stark our way out of this someday. Boom. The free market is going to produce the solutions. We, we have to go beyond saying that. Now, because here's the deal. The, the, the free market doesn't, let me just say, the free market doesn't produce anything. Ta-da. Like this, this concept this, uh, this, this, there isn't an invisible hand there, the free market, there are, there is a, there are Christian reasons to want free markets, but intrinsically they aren't going to produce good because it depends on the hearts of the people in them. Right. Right. Like I could use the free market to enrich myself to the detriment of my neighbors or I could use the free markets to enrich my neighbors and provide for my family. Yeah. Depending yeah, on the and by the way, um, on basically every side of this question on a political level, I'm basically convinced that most, I mean, most of the talking points that come out, most of the things that are said coming from one side or the other are basically just the talking points of giant multinational corporations Probably. that care nothing for you, your family, your neighborhood, the people around you. Um, and you you just parrot them because it sounds better than what the other guy's saying, right? Um, you, and, and there's something about it that you like maybe. But a lot of it is like, I think what you're saying um, is goes back to a lot of these debates that we've done. There's just an assumption about certain policy issues that, hey, if we put in the right policy, things will change. Mm -hmm. But a, a people that is not virtuous, a people that is in rebellion to God, and inevitably, if in rebellion to God, in rebellion to his creation, uh, is not going to have a free market that does good things for creation. Yep. It's just not going to work that way, at least not in the long term, right? God is gracious. God restrains our sin. I'm not saying it doesn't work out for good sometimes. But on a general level, um, we can't just trust uh, free freedom as just this open, like, like all the time good thing. Well, true freedom is not actually going to do anything 
if you're not a free person. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to frame, as we're about to go to the environmentalist guy's side here, um, and by the way, everyone, I checked the timestamp. It's an even longer presentation. So so strap in. Um, The question to actually move someone in these conversations to actually have a more interesting conversation is something Brian did mention. Ask what the trade-off is. Yeah. Ask them how much less food would you like to produce if it would lower the temperature this much in degrees? How much higher, how much higher costs of living from gas, heating, all of these things would you like to pay if it would cause this thing in real life? And then if it didn't cause that, what would we do? How many things would you like to, uh, and again, he does talk about the problem with all the things I just described as abstract. There are less abstract examples, which maybe we'll get to. I really, I mean, obviously I don't hope because I know it's not going to be more concrete and more like specific. Um, so we'll just go to it. But but the question to ask anyone is the tr- about the trade-offs. You can't just let someone say, we've got to protect the environment. We need to do right by future generations. Like that's not, those are, that's nothing, right? That's hot air. That's rhetoric. The question is trade-offs. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate that. Jake, tell us your perspective. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you for your comments, Brian. I actually agreed with much of the the worldview section in particular. So as I begin, I think something that can happen um, when we talk about something like climate change or global warming, um, these terms can kind of sound very technical and remote and far off. They have a way of insulating us um, from the reality of what's being described. Um, And so I wanna start off just by talking about some of the risks we're facing um, that are some of them we're living with right now. Some are likely to come in the coming decades, not century. This is a um, nightmare. And so j- just to go down these, some of the things we're talking about that have already happened, um, the destruction of a third of the world's old growth forests in the last 30 years, um, thankfully has slowed down in the last 10 years, but between 1990 and about 2010, we chopped down tons of old growth forests. And that's especially dangerous because those have unique ecosystems that have developed over centuries. We don't just plant more trees and recover that. Um, we're talking about a catastrophic number of species, maybe as many as 40% of all species on earth being driven into extinction or toward critically endangered status by 2050. Um, we're talking about the probable disappearance or significant reduction of most global coral reefs by 2050 as water temperatures rise. Um, we're talking about shrinking ice caps, which we can see happening now as glaciers break away in the Arctic and Antarctic. And as sea, level ri- sea levels rise, there are cities that will be put at risk by this. In the U.S., that would be Miami, New Orleans, and New York in particular. Um, a number of other cities globally. Uh, we're talking about the desertification of the American West. Um, as they get less rain, wildfire risks rise farming will have to change because they will not have the same water resources to draw upon. Um, We're talking about dangers to human life, animal life, and air quality that are created by those more intense and frequent wildfires. Um, We're talking about economic and communal challenges that are created by more regular high-intensity hurricanes. Um, Warmer water, warmer air can mean that hurricanes intensify faster. and create more damage because they're a category four or five hitting instead of a category two or three. Um, 
And finally, we're talking about some actually enormous financial costs that come with this, um, as we've seen recently with the hurricanes that have hit in Puerto Rico and Florida um, and with wildfires. So the, the dangers we're talking about, some are coming, some are things we're dealing with right now. There is a second question to consider as well, though, which is how we're going to respond to these problems. Um, and there's a lot of ways that we can. A social problem does not necessitate a government response. Um, we can deal with social problems through cultural means sometimes. A cultural norm develops and it gets reinforced softly through society such that you aren't going to say or do a certain thing in a public place because a cultural norm has developed there. We can also accomplish a lot of things through commercial means as we put the power of markets to work to accomplish some desired good. And then of course, there are also political means where we use public policy and law to try and accomplish some desirable good. So one, the obvious question to start with to begin is are cultural and commercial means enough? And I don't think they are, and this is why. Um, first thing to consider um, is it's important to understand that there are reasons we got here. Um, there are enormous market forces that have propelled many of these negative changes. Um, we didn't deplete oceans because we were just doing it for fun. There were market incentives to overfish certain bodies of water. We didn't chop down old growth forests for fun. We did it because there were market incentives to do so. Um, we have failed to act at many points because of market incentives to keep going as we're going rather than change course. Um, there was a moment in the late 70s and early 1980s where there was a very strong push to try and adopt some more aggressive measures to slow climate change, and those did not happen. And you can even see this now. I, I looked up, according to Open Secrets, um, just the oil companies spent $176 million on lobbying in 2009 alone, and they've spent around $120 million every year from 2010 to 2021 on lobbying in Washington. Um, so I think to turn toward climate or to turn toward commerce alone to solve these problems is naive. Um, the incentives of right now that a company has are not necessarily the incentives that we need to be thinking about because we might be dealing with a problem 20, 30, 40 years down the road. Um, parenting analogies might be helpful in this sense. Um, the incentives I give my child to not do something right now might not be about what's going to happen to them today if they do it. It's what will happen to them 15 years from now if they keep doing it. The thing we need to understand is that markets don't appear from nothing. They don't descend from some kind of skyhook um, in some pure, sullied, untouched state. Um, they're made, and they're made through many factors. They are made through um, the laws of nations, customs of cultures, the realities of geography and climate. This is why we have the joke about someone who could sell ice to an Eskimo, because they have no need for ice. Um, markets evolve over time. Until quite recently, there was not much of a market for air conditioning in Northern Europe. But after this last summer, where they had temperatures over 100 degrees in England, there is now more of a market for air conditioning. Um, so what sound climate policy can do is it can help create new contexts and environments in which new behaviors are incentivized and rewarded by new markets. Um, likewise, while culture can and does inform practices, I think culture and law should be understood as friends rather than adversaries. Um, a society where cultural norms and public policies are in conflict um, isn't going to endure in that way for long because something is going to give one way or the other. 
Um, I think you could say we've seen that recently in lots of laws regarding sex and gender. The cultural norms were in one place and the laws eventually shifted in response to changing cultural norms. Um, they, they should work together. Um, there's one other angle to consider here, and this is an argument I'm borrowing um, from my friend Brad Littlejohn. He's argued given the degree of the dangers we're dealing with, it is extremely unlikely that government is never going to have to act to deal with these things. Um, the question before us is more, are we going to try and do what we still can proactively, or are we going to react in the heat of crisis? Um, when sidewalks are melting, railroad tracks are being warped, as they were in England and Northern Europe just this past summer, um, government can't sit on its hands at that point because so many things are disrupted. Um, I think it is better to have laws that are passed proactively in concert with culture and commerce rather than reacting in the heat of crisis. What that means. Um, particularly because especially if you're concerned about commerce and markets, I think government regulations passed in crisis often prove to be far more draconian and they often are far harder to unravel than laws that are passed proactively where we're able to work with a broader coalition. Um, and so that brings me to the second deeper argument I wanna make um, is that if we imagine politics as having this purely negative kind of, a purely negative view of government where government basically exists just to um, protect against physical harm and protect property rights. Um, I think that notion of politics is more indebted to certain post-Christian modern ideas about politics than it is more traditional Christian ideas about common life. Um, for Christians, politics are about how to structure the necessary social relationships we all have so that they're mutually beneficial um, and delightful. Um, so I think we should we make a mistake if we see the relationship between markets and culture and government as being adversarial. I think they should be convivial. Ideally, they are three different strands of a cord wrapped together, all working in the same direction. Um, so to put government at odds with worker wealth, for example, or to define property rights in absolutist terms is, I think, a mistake that has more to do with modern political thought than it does traditional Christian thought. Um, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein, the psalmist tells us. And this is why um, for much of church history, the chief concern Christians have had with property rights has been about ensuring common use for all, um, not necessarily protecting individual rights. Individual property rights are an administrative tool we use to ensure the common use of, property, of the earth for all. Because individual use has become dominant and the commons have been neglected to such a degree, um, I worry that problems requiring collective action, which is what I think we're facing, um, become almost unsolvable because we've lost the capacity for that common action because we've come to see society as so grounded in conflict. Um, and this is a problem on the left and the right. I'm not trying to score political points either way um, here. I think the, the revolutionary sense of politics is founded in this vision of essential conflict. And I think that's a serious misstep that Christians should avoid. Bavink has been very helpful to me in understanding that. Um, so what is to be done? I'll just throw out a couple policy ideas and then we can get into the conversation. Um, actually, a lot of these things are starting to happen now already. Um, during his term, to his credit, um, President Trump joined an international um, agreement to plant a very, very large number of trees. I don't remember the exact number 
um, that a number of countries globally are involved in, and that's valuable. Um, trees can help soil quality. They provide shade for wildlife, so that can protect species. Um, they serve as a windbreak, which can help with soil erosion. Um, enough trees can also be a carbon sink that might be able to help mitigate some of the damages we're doing through um, burning so many fossil fuels. Um, I think that's one policy we should get behind. Um, there's a number of other provisions um, in the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act that um, President Biden helped pass that do things like make it easier for um, nonprofits as well as for-profit entities to get solar power set up at their facilities. Um, there's another regulation that came through that is going to help us phase out, so not ban overnight, but phase out um, a particularly nasty um, compound called hydrofluorocarbons that trap more heat um, than just burning CO2. Um, so I think those are good steps. Other things that we can do are we can actually offer tax credits and incentives to try and help nudge incentive structures for markets and for ordinary consumers in directions that are better for the planet. So I think if, if we do start with this position of a conflict between humanity and nature or between um, where we work and the political entities we participate in, then I think we are parting ways with historic Christian thought. But I think what government can do um, is it can try to create environments in which it is easier, this is a Dorothy Day idea, um, a world in which it's easier to be good. And so what government can do through wisely developed policy um, is try to create spaces in which behaviors that are more conducive to environmental health are more likely to happen. This is a, a something a, a farmer with some friends of mine at the Bruderhof community has said, um, he says, the good news is that there is a way back. We can stop destroying and start restoring. Opening. We can work with nature so that in essence, the land heals itself. It is simply a matter of grasping certain principles that must be respected. Um, and the Bruderhof have been able to do this at many of their communities around the world. And so my hope for us is that we would be people who respect these principles and that our communities, families, neighborhoods, cities, and governments um, would also be such communities. Thank you. I appreciate it. Our moderator, I was, do you think his, his first statement will be, I was unable to stay awake during either of the entirety of the. <laughs> his first right, statement Pastor is, Michael. what? Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Pastor Michael, I'm going to come in hot here real quick because that's the direction Jake sees the planet going. Um, <laughs> Join with it, Matt. Here are a few policy. I, he gave some specifics here at the end. We need to plant more trees. We should support elements of the Inflation Reduction Act, which, oddly enough, no part of what he said did well in that had anything to do with inflation, but the promotion of solar panels in certain industries and phasing out over time hydrofluoric um, carbon, uh, carbon offput. I don't know what that is. Now, here is why those interesting policy ideas. He was saying we should do that to confront the fact that we currently live in a world where sidewalks are beginning to melt off the earth and 40% of the animal and plant life is about to be gone within a few decades. My children will see 40% less, less animals existing. What if we tried planting more trees, though? What if, what if that one, one chemical you've never heard of, what if we stopped using that slowly over time? 
these are not these aren't even in the like realm of like the kinds of action like this is the like i know i'm talking to tgc and i have to be like see look there are these like three things you don't care about you've never heard of and you, you probably already think it's a good idea to plant trees that's what we need to, like all you're doing is like telling me don't look up while an, you literally believe an asteroid's about to destroy human life yeah. right like what if we planted some more trees and had government that's delightful and makes it easier to be good uh, <laughs> wouldn't it be wonderful man <laughs> don't you want a delightful government they're <laughs> gonna melt into the rivers yeah and if we don't now it's not we will melt into the river. we're all melting right now I know. and you need it uh i'm going to uh say so your point on the we're all about to die that's why we need to do these things that will have an effect in decades is right. like that shows that there's something totally off and also i think it's a great policy to plant tons of trees i think by the way we should take all the money that's been being spent on the ukraine war and we sh and we should use that to plant more trees i think everybody in the u.s should get money to plant fruit trees and nut trees and all kinds of of trees on whatever property they have. I think that's what we should do with all of that money. And I think that would actually be awesome. If I was president for a day and I could do something like that, if I could do that and I could ban certain farming practices, I would actually do it. It sounds, uh, that sounds great. Ban certain chemicals. I actually do think um, that some of that is good. I, I think hydrofluorocarbons is much more having to do with uh, temperatures, not, it's not chemical necessarily as much as the the heat of it all and how it's going to heat up the atmosphere and those things there's so much of that that is it's it is speculation now maybe you know the science better than me and you could tell me no there's some of this that is accurate something that we're doing is having an effect i'm not even totally against that uh, like that idea in and of itself that we could be having some kind of an effect the idea that england is heating up well we know it's been hotter than it is right now in previous centuries Right. Like we know that that has been the case. We know that the world all around us has very often changed in temperature, in sea level. Um, there have been places. Yes, we should ban seed oils. Um, <laughs> yeah, this would be one of them. This is one of, me, one of the things I would ban as president for a day. Uh, I'll start working on my platform. Uh, but uh, and also a lot of pesticides. But. This is stuff that's always happened, right? The. The Sahara Desert was once lush, beautiful, green, tropical forests and pasture and things like that. We know this, right? I'll and now it is now I'll it is a desert. Truther. What? What? Right, Atlantis truther. <laughs> no, we know this to be a fact. It was this way. And so, like, and and by the way, the reason that the the Amazon rainforest is as lush and and fruitful as it is, is in part because of the Sahara Desert, which is a desert now, which you can't imagine thinking that would be a good thing, but all kinds of the, the minerals and nutrients and things like that are whipped up in the air with the sandstorms, and they're literally carried across the Atlantic Ocean, and they come down in rainfall in the Amazon. I'm just saying, these things are so much bigger and more complicated than you can imagine, 
that when you bring it down to something that it's so obvious and simple, it's just not. This is why I want to see how are you living, right? How, like, what are you doing? And I actually think Jake Meter very possibly is doing some good things um, based on some of his final comments. I think that, that he maybe is actually putting into practice some of these things, but most people he's talking about aren't. The policies that he's trying to, um, in some ways, defend, generally speaking, are not actually policies that will do anything on the ground. I am actually concerned, by the way, uh, with so many animals going extinct. I think this is a problem. I do think that we live in a way um, that is going to cause a, a desertification of a lot of land. Um, we've had already in the history of this country a dust bowl that was literally because of our farming practices. And though some of that has changed, we're currently doing a lot of similar things in other ways, right? We, we, do, um, we do raise a lot of our food specifically, and we use a lot of you know, chemicals and other processes that are extremely destructive to us, to our bodies, to our children, to fertility, to the animal life around us, to the insect life around us. And that is not good. It's not a good thing, even though the free market has told us to do it, even though it's, it's causing a whole lot of you know, multinational corporations to make an unbelievable amount of money at your expense and the expense of the land that you're going to give to your children. Uh, so I'm concerned about these things. But when you throw that in with we need to change the global temperature by a couple degrees by shutting down all these industries or something like that. I just, man, I, like, I just don't, I don't know how you are like putting those two things together. Those are, those live in different worlds, right? Yeah. So all the money just, it's good. If it just goes to, you know, we start talking about solar power, right? I like the idea of solar power. Is it, is it environmentally friendly? Does it actually have, a beneficial effect on CO2 levels, like you say it does? Probably not. Probably not. I, like, does it have a lot of negative effects of its own in its production, in the waste that it produces? Yes, we know that to be a fact. Um, can you actually change what we currently have to a fully solar and wind-powered system really quickly? No, you can't. Um, it's going to take an extremely long, uh, long time. And will that actually, again, do anything? Probably not. You know, probably not. Uh, so it's just, it. I don't know. It's so weird that you get into these complicated things that have no actual tangible effects on anything on the ground that changes the actual way we live. Yeah. Uh, if you just, if you're like, well, I'm going to just consume a, in a different way. I'm going to be a pure consumer, um, in that sense, parasitic in just a different way. Well, you haven't actually changed anything. Uh, and probably the only way to change things at that point, which a lot of people have come to the conclusion of, is to lower the population. That would be the way that you change it. If, if, if we're still going to be consuming in the same way that we do, if we still want all of the kinds of conveniences that we still have, uh, but we just want to do it in a different way, well, the, the only option at that point seems to me lower population, which is actually wrong. I want the world to be more filled with the image of God than it is even now, right? That's that's a Christian view, I think. And, um, anyway. And obviously, you know, if Brian Matson is the, we're going to Tony Stark our way out of this, there are legitimate people in the environmental community that basically think Thanos was right in, yeah. the, in the Avengers movie. Right, he that, was the good guy. That we need to snap a bunch of people out of existence. 
for for balance. Now, here's here's actually uh, this is the this is the reason I think today that I was like, you know, when we were in our Patreon chat, which you can join for as low as uh, three ninety nine, um, voting on which of these debates we would do next. I voted for this one because a long time ago I tried to join a reading group. Uh, Pastor Michael has. Um, and just found that I was unable to manage it at that point. I was living across the world and, and with being in seminary at that time. And now that I'm planning a church would not be the time to jump back in. But before I quit, everyone. You don't do it anymore, by the way. It just, all of us had to, all of us had to uh, pass it by. It was, I'm really sad, by the way. It was amazing. Uh, but it was anyway. great. But we, uh, we read a book called How to Be a Conservative by Russell Kirk. And Roger Scruton. Oh, Roger Scruton. I don't know. They are, <laughs> to me, same person. I'm not blind. <laughs> I don't know this stuff. Um, they um, great book, by the way. Everybody, go out, get it. Super helpful if you actually want to consider yourself a conservative. Um, go, topics, go read Scruton. The topics of the book, in what we would cover, it what he covered was fascinating yeah. because each chapter was something like this: the truth in nationalism, the truth in socialism, and and so what he he was pointing at that there are these endearing motivations that come to these things. And he had the truth in environmentalism. And for me, it was the most evocative look at the difference between the environmental action that pastor Michael is talking very passionately about and the kinds that is talked about on an average day, because um, Roger Scruton pointed out uh, things like the dust bowl or even the sixties and seventies, when the air quality in the country, in the United States and in many, many places, there was acid rain. The air quality was very, very bad. There was very like, right. We still talk, you know, being Pastor Michael and I being from the Mississippi Valley that you shouldn't eat too many fish. But there was a time where there was so much mercury. It was like it, the 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 limit you had to eat of the fish coming out of the Mississippi was actually like like kind of scary like shocking that there was that much mercury getting into the meat of the fish in the mississippi and roger scruton points out and do you know what we did we cleaned the rivers we took measurable specific actions and said for example we took a trade-off no we don't want this factory making this thing in our economy if it's going to do this to the river we're closing it yep that was a specific trade-off. Or giving an ultimatum, hey, you can't do this anymore. You need to find out a, a better process or the, the the destructive impact you're having is not worth whatever and, you're doing. And we are going to accept that will cost people jobs. Yep. The end. Whereas now, environmentalism, even the things we're talking about, they're abstract, they're potential. Yes. There's almost no way to measure yeah. progress or negative or cause or effect and that for me was just like this this very eye-opening um desire for someone to like actually talk about environmentalism in that way and i actually think um christians who are often seen as anti-environmentalists if we are we want to talk about if we are presented in an active way to actually improve the lives of our neighbors the air quality, these things, we should we should want to do it. Now, the problem is there is almost no one with credibility today to talk about these things, no. let alone TGC, which is why I was copying all the article titles from the front page of TGC from today. Yeah. Let me just read a few. 
Christians should welcome the conversations Barbie sparks. Our missions approach is too Western. Pastors, seek out trustworthy ministry friends. Moms, make the most of margin time. Abiding abiding fuels evangelical evangelism. Why America is not a Christian nation by none other than Michael Horton, a Presbyterian bishop. Um, and Jesus and John Winthrop, alternatives to to toxic masculinity. Maybe some of those articles are good. Some of them I know are bad, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the titles. But none of, I'm not coming to any of these people for, oh, give me your, like, I'm not here for climate science. Mm -hmm. um, and the other problem is many of the people who speak most dogmatically about science also will say things like, um, you know, there are not two genders and that's a scientific reality. Like there are things that the, the same people who will speak dogmatically on these issues will refuse to let me accept what my lying eyes are telling me. And then they will ask me to make abstract sacrifices for an abstract goal that there's no way to measure that in certainly is enriching somebody now. And that, and that they don't make any sacrifice for themselves. Right. Generally speaking, that's not true of everyone, uh, but generally speaking. Um, so and, I'm, Oh, go ahead. I'll. Okay. So then my, my final thing is um, Jake Meteor's, um, I do agree that some of the things he said at the end were, were positive things, mm -hmm. positive personal things. I think, but his agenda, while he stated as humbly as he can, is so vast and is yeah. such an overhaul. He said, we have to change our view of culture, of how we understand the government in the West. Like, yeah. it is a, it's he's a nice sounding guy. He's a smart sounding guy. He, he speaks in a very, erudite and soft way but it is a revolutionary idea when we're talking about we have to create new contexts with new laws for new behaviors and new cultures right this is a this is revolutionary um and he might be right there might be more to government than the hardcore libertarian it's got to be negative don't structure my relationships but also we don't want to you shouldn't talk too much about that because you become a christian nationalist once you ask those kinds of questions that's what uh that's what i've learned but but it is a vast this is a huge thing he's describing if to plant trees we have to fix everyone's view of the government do you know what we should actually just do go plant a tree like like I know that that he's like personal action isn't enough at the level we're at. And maybe he's right. If an asteroid is literally coming towards Earth, he's right. Pastor Michael and I can't do anything personally to change that. But the alternative he's given is, well, if we just change everything about everything and everyone, we'll fix this. Well, then I can only do <laughs> thing I can do, which is true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, here's this, the reality is that the situation is actually, um, it's much more hopeful than that. It's also much more dire than that. And this is what I mean. I think a lot of times people in these conversations have a much more mechanical view of the world than the world actually is. So it's like, you know, for instance, hey, governments need to act because the train tracks are melting or whatever he said, right? Like, like government, they need to act now on these policy issues because this thing's happening immediately um, or even just the, Hey, if we don't stop this right now, global temperatures are guys this much, 
That's going to cause these places to be underwater. That's going to do this. And there's just a mechanical view of how this works. Hey, if we do this thing, it will fix it. Um, I think that that is not actually understanding uh, creation. It's not understanding the cosmos um, in the way that you should, because the cosmos is not primarily or only material. Um, It is also uh, spiritual, right? There's a spiritual element to all of this. And our land is going to spit us up, vomit us up if we continue in high-handed rebellion against God. That's what land does. The creation around us is, although it is under us in a certain way because we were made to have dominion over it, um, it's also true that it's on God's side, right? Like it's it belongs to him. And as we fight against the creator, creation itself is going to fight against us. And it doesn't matter if you have the right policy about how to change CO2 emissions. Um, it, you still will not actually fix the most fundamental problem. And so when we see all kinds of environmental disaster, I think number one, the number one response we should have is we need to repent. We need to pray to God and we need to ask him to change things. If that means changing our hearts, which obviously on a, on a societal level is necessary right now on an individual level where we're going to face consequences covenantally, even of, you know, because of those that we live amongst, but God does love us. Um, if we are in Christ, we can pray that he would help us to, uh, to not be affected by that quite as much and to find ways that we might be preserved in the midst of it. And God is gracious. It's not like overnight we're all going to die, um, but he could do that and he would be right to do it. That's how, like, that's how wicked we are. And so number one, I do think that we, we basically need to uh, just repent. Uh, but uh, beyond that, right, like even just having that mechanical view, uh, it also gives you this sense of like a, uh, when I say when I say things are much worse than what he's saying, that's what I mean, right? On a spiritual level, like you're not going to fix everything apart from being redeemed. You're not going to fix everything apart from having uh, a true reformation uh, of of people. Um, that's where it has to start, right? Um, creation was subjected to futility, not on its own, not by its own choice, but because we sinned. Right, because we brought sin into the world. And so that's number one. On the other hand, things are not near as hopeless as they always make it sound uh, because the nature of nature is that God has made it incredibly regenerative, where Mm. if you work with it in such a way um, that by natural revelation, by the wisdom that especially comes to us as we we follow Christ, uh, but not exclusively even, but actually, also through actual just natural revelation, there are ways that we can work within creation in such a way that we take dominion and it actually things get like things get put back together much faster than you actually realize, right? Like, uh, like waterways become healthy much faster than you realize they can. Uh, my, one of my favorite analogies for this is with the, the massive depletion of the topsoil. So um, topsoil is basically a magical substance. <laughs> it's, this is it is like the stuff of fairy tales if you actually look into it and what all it can do just the topsoil is basically uh basically what we refer to as just the you know the the top layer of soil uh but it's it is uh really having to do with the the amount of microbiological life 
that is uh, in the soil itself. Uh, when you have a garden or something, the, the nature of the soil itself is going to very much determine what you're getting out of it. Um, this is just a, a wonderful principle, by the way, that that can help you in so many different ways. This is a great analogy for spiritual life and, and God has given it to us in the natural world. Uh, but if you have really unhealthy soil, uh, you are going to not get the produce out of it that you think you're getting. Um, you can, for instance, uh, the produce, you can have produce in a grocery store today, uh, a carrot, let's say a carrot. And it was planted in the exact same spot that carrots were planted 50 years ago. But if somebody has not tended to that soil, if that they, if they've not been adding carbon, if they've not been adding compost, if they've not been if they've not been building up the microbiological life of that soil, the carrot it may even look about the same at this point, uh, but the nutrient value in that carrot is going to be so much depleted that it's almost like a virtual reality. Like that carrot, it really like is it better for you than some things? Yeah, but is it actually good for you? Maybe not really. Um, it, you know, that's what can happen. In other words, if the soil itself is not in good condition, by and large, most industrial farming practices have depleted topsoil. Tons of topsoil runs off into our rivers and waterways every year in the U.S. because of the large monocrop systems that are at work uh, that most of our food is produced through um, or the feed for our you know, animals is produced through or, or whatever. Right. So this is most of it. However, with careful management of soil you can actually bring it back very quickly. When it has been barren even, and it seems like there's no life that can grow from it, it can come back very quickly with proper management. And this is why I say there's actually hope in all of this. You talk about these forests being cleared. You talk about a lot of these things that have happened um, that that are destructive, the coral reefs dying, those sorts of things. I think, and, and overfishing, those are all real problems that I think uh, we run into regularly. Uh, that are problematic, that most of them you can't do anything about. <laughs> but let's just, let's talk, if you, we want to talk abstractly, let's talk, talk abstractly. Um, the world that God has made is full of life. And everywhere that we look, life just keeps going and keeps pushing through, right? You can blacktop a, a whole parking lot, and it's only going to take a couple years before you've got different plants breaking their way through it. Uh, because life doesn't, it just doesn't stop. You can't stop it. And so we go to Antarctica and we're like, this is the most desolate place in the world. Nothing could live here. And then they keep looking and they keep finding more and more life, right? You go to the bottom of the oceans, you go to volcanoes, you go to wherever you'd think there's nothing here and there's more there than you could ever imagine uh, because God is abundant and life-giving. Uh, and so his world is going to be that way. What that means though, is that the, the hope is that then in what, whatever your sphere of life is, you can start right now living in a way that is actually much more uh, sustainable, regenerative. That it's whatever kind of you know phrase you want to use to say, like, you can live in a way that is healthier and better for creation around you. Uh, and it will actually have an effect. It will actually help. It may be little at first. It may be, hey, you're going to get one potted plant in your apartment in the city. That's okay. That's a good, like, that's a good way to start. Um, that plant is going to be, you know, doing a lot of good things um, for you, even as you take care of it. And, and so anyway, I know I just ran it for a long time because uh, I'm, this is just something that uh, I'm interested in and I like. Uh, 
things are really much worse than you think. And also there's a lot more hope than you think there is. So everybody, I have two things to say. One, um, this is why I wanted to have the conversation with pastor Michael for answers like that. But, um, two, if you're a person like me and you're like, dang, he's right. Plants are like, yeah, I'm just going to grow through blacktop. And then I have a plant in my house and I'm like, oh, you died. I didn't water you for like a day. What happened? Why can you grow, why can you grow through blacktop? We're like, on a power line, but in my house, you die the next day. Uh, that's that, The struggle is real. That's true. That's true. Um, the curse is real. But here's the, here's the thing. Here, I'll say this. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we did it. The first half of Pastor Michael's answer, uh, before he actually got into some specific environmental concerns pastor michael you just we have the sermon you could preach on this subject there you go and so if 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 i'm ever at a church plant welcome everyone looking for someone to preach on climate change it will be a guest speaker pastor michael bowman um pastor michael we have 15 minutes um we did get halfway through this good faith debate because they're uh their things were so long but let's see if we can get at least one of their i'm sure what will be fiery back and forths uh from uh our good moderator friend here both of you i'll uh i'll start with you brian one of the the main areas of disagreement here seems to be the measure the degree to which we proactively address this problem um and the role of the free market and the government in that process so i come from the state of florida and uh, it, when my grandparents moved there in the 30s, which means we were in Orlando before there was a good reason to be in Orlando. And uh, back then the lakes were crystal clear. Um, you could eat the fish in them. The, uh, the fishing all around the state was amazing. Now nobody would eat a bass out of a lake in central Florida. The estuaries around Canaveral are, no longer have the vegetation they used to. You wouldn't eat the fish there. Uh, even the keys. I can remember growing up as a kid, and we, my dad would take me offshore, and we would we'd finish fishing some days when we filled up the boat. Now you go all day hoping for one or two medium-sized fish because of the the impact of commercial fishing in there. So, you know, and then you add the sugar canes and sugar cane fields that block the water from the Everglades, the natural filtering process. All that to say, I hear what you're saying. For me, those issues feel like the free market's not helping. So how can you, and I don't expect you to be an expert, particularly on the waterways of Florida. Florida habitat. But there, but there are places where it feels like the, the free market is doing the opposite. What, what do you say to that? Well, I think that I'm not here to, to, to deny the need for environmental regulation. Um, I'm, in fact, I'm happy to to uh, defend the status quo mm-hmm. of environmental regulation i think okay so i'm we are not gonna we're not gonna just watch five minutes of this answer before we jump <laughs> in so um one i'm just gonna go ahead and say bummer on the lakes in central florida if that's the case that you can't you can't eat any fish out of them anymore um but let me just say again this is a problem and this is uh I think we know where Jim is, where Jim's feeling here on, on these answers by that question. But again, he asked the question, is the free market helping? No. Is it enough? But, but again, here's my problem. The free market isn't a person. It doesn't have a will. It doesn't have a, uh, a soul. It doesn't have moral agency. 
The question is, are the people of Central Florida helping or hurting? Right? Like, they are the ones with active power for good or for ill for the bass in the lakes in Central Florida. So actually, so kind of, right? Like, there's, there's a truth to that. But this is actually getting to one of the problems. The debate is about policy, and it's almost specifically been focused on or at least those policies which have been mentioned have been federal policies right, right? or you know um, climate change agendas that are maybe global in scale and the reality is that where policy can help best if it can help is almost always going to be uh, the closest to the problems like the closest to the yes. land the closest to the lakes in florida and so what you're saying is right i think that um, it would be right if we didn't live in a time when most policy decisions were kicked up to, say, a national level, maybe a state level even. Um, but I do think that it brings up the fact that if we can, as much as possible, bring those kinds of policy decisions to local levels, county levels, and state levels, um, wherever possible, um, that is actually a good start probably. Um, on the On the one hand, because the people that are closest to the problem actually are going to have an idea of how to fix it probably, or at least have the, the incentive to fix it. They should have right. the incentive, right? I care deeply about the land that I live on um, in large part because I live on it, right? I want it to, to do well. I want it to be better. I want to take care of it in what way that I can. And so I'm going to be more vigilant about it than say somebody who is working in Washington, DC at a desk. That's like, well, maybe, we should do something to, you know, change policy about uh, waterways in Wisconsin. They just they don't care about it in the way I care about it. Um, so but, I think that that shows, you know, where that could be really helpful. But my my point is again, I agree with you because, and here is and here is why because when he says, "Are the free markets helping?" and I'm saying they don't exist, what we're saying is, is a is unregulated human behavior better or especially when it comes to major economic systems is a few people making the decisions in an economy, a better thing for the environment. And this is what people are arguing that there are a few people we should trust to make the decisions for the environment over lots of people being able to have economic freedom. That's why this is an economic issue. What you're saying uh, is no, there are cases where we need to regulate certain behavior right out of out of our communities and the people best to do that are not a few people in a certain place but as local and as close by as we can right if you own the land perfect you are the immediate person that's the easiest thing we can do to regulate that if you are in a county a community great right like right you're working your way out which is certainly a way that would actually incentivize care for it because you are because you're saying I need to work with the people who are making this problem or can fix it or what you know or or are interrelated to it, right? That's that's what I think is different. But but yeah, no, I I agree. Um, but okay, we're we are gonna get we are gonna get to the end of this little thing, and so there's like there's five minutes more, but we are gonna stop and start because I'm that Jake is saying more needs to be done. Um, you know, the, the Environmental Protection Agency's share of the Federal Register this year is 30,246 pages. Yes, I took the opportunity to count. 
uh, spread over 30. So you can't say nothing's being done. Spread over 37 yeah. well, yeah. bound yes, volumes. That's not low <laughs> regulation. Uh, I counted. Look uh, at all those look at all those pages of it. Oh, so nothing, you know, so you can't say that nothing's being done. You can. Yeah. You you could not believe the amount of paper the federal government can produce when doing nothing. <laughs> I mean, unfettered lazy fair free market capitalism. I'm not at all against. I mean, I'm from Montana and we have a long history of industrial interests extracting our natural resources. We're called the treasure state for a reason. Uh, people extract those treasures, right? Uh, and we have one of the largest Superfund sites uh, in the country in Butte, Montana. Um, I'm not against stopping the tragedy of Butte, Montana and the Berkeley pit there at all. So I'm not against regulation. Um, the proactive part, I think, is, is, the, is key to your question. And that is, um, who has that insight? That forward-looking insight to say, uh, if we just craft these laws and these rules, and, and then the market will sort of um, inhabit the natural legal paths that we have prefabricated, um, I'm wondering who's wise enough to do that. Um, because that kind of central planning um, has all kinds of problems with it. Um, the, the knowledge problem, um, how can one person or one committee or one group of experts possibly know all of the factors that are going into things? And so you have a knowledge problem there. And I'm concerned about central planning. I'm concerned about a state that has no restraints on it. Um, Jake um, talked about conviviality and how the state and culture and economics and politics ought to all be friends. Um, what he's leaving out is that only one of those groups has a monopoly on coercion and violence. So um, that's a concern of mine that uh, a state says to one industry that's uh, disfavored, we're going to penalize you and reward our friends over here because we approve of what they're doing. The state has the power to do that. And so uh, no, I'm not a laissez-faire, don't know environmental regulations. I am concerned about how those policies get crafted. Um, is, it a, is it a cult of the expert who's just going to tell everybody how, how this is going to go? That hasn't worked well in the past. Um, or are there alternatives to that? And I think that, the, that markets are far more nimble than, than many give them credit for. I mean, this guy's going to need to give us a little more sizzle and pop <laughs> he wants me to have have much to say about what he's talking about um any uh anything anything here pastor michael or should we try and get a little of the the next clip is called the global uh warming perspective no i don't think we should get into it i think i don't know that just sounds like too much let's save that for tomorrow when we come back to this uh i We'll say this, uh, the very fact that one of these debate lines is now, okay, what's the place for, you know, the government? And what we really mean is we mean the federal government. That's what's, I mean, that is what's being debated, really, uh, I think. I think that's at least the main focus of what's being debated. Um, and part of that is because we live in a governmental system that more and more things have been pushed to the federal government not even just because the federal government has seized more and more power, but because more and more political actors on all kinds of levels 
like to be able to push things off to the federal government so that they don't have to bear the responsibility for it. Uh, that's just a little nugget. Think about it. I think this is true. Uh, there's a lot of people that don't want to take responsibility. And so over time, what's happened is it's that responsibility has been passed to those who will take it. And uh, generally that has at this point been the federal government uh, in, in its different agencies and things like that, because they're unaccountable. They can take the responsibility. It's not really responsibility because they'll never get in trouble for, for uh, making mistakes in this way. We've mostly been talking about that. Um, the, the idea of the markets being a better agent of some of these things may have some truth to it, except that we live in a system when the markets are almost completely controlled by the federal government. Not completely, but I mean, as far as regulation, as far as monopolies, as far as the lobbying that's been mentioned from all kinds of different sectors, obviously, uh, Meter talked about the oil industry um, and, and their lobbying, but also the massive lobbying that comes from solar panel companies, from you know the, the green energy lobby. Um, we don't, I mean, we don't have a free market and a 100% free market, by the way, like just totally laissez-faire. I think he's exactly right. It actually wouldn't be good. And where it has happened at times, usually what happens is a large corporate interest comes in and works against the good of the land and the people. And that's at least going to more likely happen in that kind of a system. Uh, or I, I should say, it, it's very possible for that to happen in that kind of system. Um, that still happens today too. It just happens with kickbacks to the federal government in various ways. So what I'm pointing out is that it's a mess, right? Like it's all a mess. And there is almost nothing that you can do about that. You may, uh, in the providence of God, be put in a position where you have more of a chance to do something about that. Maybe you get to craft policy on a local, state, or national level. Maybe you get to be more involved in those things. There are some people who will be. The vast majority of us never will. And the things that we try to say on social media, the vote that we put in the ballot box probably does about nothing. Uh, and may, maybe not nothing, but pretty much nothing. So I really I really think it's important to leave with what is what is actually something that you could do. Um, if you have any, if you have any desire to actually seek to live in a way that is, um, you know, trying not to sound too much like a hippie, uh, like in harmony with creation, with nature, um, as God has made it, uh, what do you, like, what is something that you can actually do? Um, uh, and I don't know all the things that you could do. I don't know where you live. I don't know who you are. Uh, but one of the things you could do is actually plant something, plant something, like take something, take a seed, plant it, water it, take care of it, plant a small garden, whatever this looks like, just do something small. Um, just start doing something, uh, in creation, right? Go, go and try to, you know, uh, prune, uh, forest, go plant a tree, uh, go, do do something that is available to you right now, actually, tangibly. Um, we're talking about planting trees. Go to a park, find a bunch of acorns that have fallen on the ground, take a handful of them and plant them 
in a hole at your house and see if you can grow a tree. Uh, maybe you can't, maybe it won't work, uh, but just start, start trying to do these sorts of things. Maybe start looking into ways that you can actually start living in a way um, that is uh, more sustainable. Go to a farmer's market instead of getting your food from Walmart. I still shop at Walmart, by the way. Um, I still go to, to large stores. I'm not saying this as somebody who, who's like, you know, how dare you evil people ever, you know, uh, take part in, in these, you know, industrialized, uh, ways of doing things. No, but do, all I'm saying is do something, right? Don't just, don't just sit and discuss policy decisions that you have no part in. It's, there's a certain level of enjoyment. There's a certain level that it can be beneficial. I hope anyway, cause we're doing it. But I like what would really be beneficial is if you actually do something real and tangible. And as you do that, by the way, I think you'll want to do it more. I think the more you do it, the first time you plant something and something living grows, you'll be amazed by it. You really will. You will, you will think this is incredible. How come I haven't done this before? And you'll want to do more of it. Uh, plant some herbs that can sit, just sit on your windowsill. And as it grows up, you can literally use it in your cooking. Just, you know, that little things is all I'm saying. Um, and you could, you could actually, in a sense, do more than any of the hot air that was released during this kind of a conversation. Well, if you want to do something, uh, you can do something that every person on YouTube says you can do all the time. You can like and subscribe this video, <laughs> subscribe to this channel. I can't promise it will do anything for the environment, but it might do as much as the Inflation Reduction Act did. Um, <laughs> so join us on Patreon. You can talk to Pastor Michael and I in our Telegram chat if you do that. Otherwise, feel free to message us on social media i can't promise we are the most active we are bad promoters we are bad at virtually all of this but we like making it so thank you for joining us also if you have listened to this point in the podcast and are in des moines if you are in des moines thursday or friday uh you can potentially send me a message and maybe we'll meet up wouldn't that be great if i saw des moines meet up um so Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining. If you joined on the live stream or listening on the podcast. So we appreciate all the support um, of everyone and everyone who watched those opening statements with us, especially. <laughs>